it's speech and how to work with speech. And I, I, part of my thinking was that this was uh, very appropriate before Thanksgiving with the family. Uh, and, uh, but also, it's, it's, very, it's, very much a, um, it's very much an area that is so central to our daily life practice. And so what I'd like to do is to talk uh, about right speech or wise speech actually fairly briefly, maybe about 20 minutes, and then have us do some practices together. And um, toward that end, I actually have, I, I brought two handouts that I want to give you, um, one of which gives some resources and the other one a list of some practices on, on wise speech. And I think I will... I think I'll just give this out right now, if you can maybe get this going around in a few ways. There are two of them. I think there are going to be, there are going to be more here than are necessary. But, so there, you should end up with two different sheets. Yeah. You should have one that has print on two sides and one that has print on one. One is called uh, Cultivating Wise Speech some resources, and the other one is called Guidelines and Practices. Okay. Does everyone have both copies? Okay, you don't need to look at these now. So let me read first um, two, two quotations about wise speech. And the first is by the Buddha. And I've actually taken quotation, one of them that I've given you, and I've made some corrections for more uh, gender-neutral language. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech, one speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable, one who is no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from malicious speech, one does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here, in order to divide those people from these, nor does one repeat to these people what one has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. Thus one is a person who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promotes concord. Abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech, one speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip. One speaks at the right time, speaks what, what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dhamma and the discipline. At the right time, one speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. And the second is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or the community to break. 
I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. So this theme of wise speech, as you know, is one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. It was, it's one of the eight main ways that we bring this practice into daily life. We know that, uh, that speech is a tremendous power in the world, that certain words can cause responses or reactions that go all the way on the spectrum from inspiring, incredible love, being touched, having one's heart open, having one's mind open. And words can also lead to tremendous suffering. One or two words can go either way. And it's an incredible practice. And we know how much, uh, just in our everyday lives, the chance word can again take us in either of the directions, you know, that I'm, I'm amazed somehow how people, just when I'm going about my business quietly, innocently, and someone can say something, or I will say something in a rush, and just the impact of that very short interaction will stay with me for hours or for days, you know, and requiring us to follow uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's guidance and to work with the conflict, or how... If I'm in a difficult state, you know, sometimes a person who can just be present with me, can just listen and I can feel that I'm seen and heard and and a few words can just totally change where I'm at, totally change my sense of suffering at times. And I think we, we aspire towards using words, as the Buddha was saying, words that promote concord or words that can inspire, that can heal, that can help. And yet it's not very clear how we do that. It's not very clear how we bring our mindfulness practice uh, and our wisdom practice and our compassion practice uh, fully into the area of speech. And so what I'd like to do is to talk some about in, in two ways. I want to talk first about the guidelines that the Buddha gave, which were exemplified in that first reading that I gave, and I, which I've stated in the, um, in the second handout, as the guidelines uh, stated more positively as speaking with truthfulness, with helpfulness, with kindness, and with clear intention or with appropriateness, that these are four guidelines that can really serve us very beautifully in our speech. And then in the second part, I want to talk about how to work with a mindfulness of speech. In some ways, we don't actually have, at least I'm not very aware, of passages which actually talk about how to do practice with speech. We have these guidelines, which are very, very crucial, but in a way, they are more ethical guidelines, and we also need to find ways to work with our practice in the moment, work with our speech to be mindful of speech and to have our speech be a part of our practice because if we can, we have no reason anymore to complain of too little time for practice. And so it's big that for us living in the world, 
to find ways to have our speech be a fundamental part of our practice and be strong and be vibrant suddenly takes our half an hour or an hour a day practice and makes us 10 hour a day practitioners <laughs> for, for some of us, you know. And so it's, it's really important to find the keys which open up that sense of practice and speech. And when we do so, well, a lot can happen, you know. And, when we, and so the second part of the talk, I want to give some suggestions and guidelines and actually do some practice together. So... Um, even before I go into those uh, four guidelines, I would invite you right now, as you listen to the talk, or my talk, and as you also uh, listen to your own responses, have the time right now be what? Speech practice. This is speech practice. This is listening practice. For you, for me, it's speech practice. What can you do, Donald, to have your talk be speech practice? Um, and for me, it partly means to be in my body, to be present, to not be, uh, not be totally trying to figure things out on a mental level and enter what for many of us is a well-known, disembodied, somewhat dissociated state. <laughs> and so that's, that's, that's my work. It's to, can I, can I have presence as I, as I speak? So set yourself right now just for one moment and ask yourself, what can I do to have this next uh, hour or so, a little less than an hour, be an example of practice of, of speech, be continuous with the mindfulness practice that we did more formally as sitting practice. And set your intention. And here we go. So the, these four aspects of uh, truthfulness and helpfulness and kindness and what I call clear intention, which is sometimes talked about as appropriateness of speech or timing, are expressed more positively. If you see in the quotation, which is on the uh, uh, first sheet that I gave, the Buddha expresses this more negatively, at least in those quotations, at least some. There's also positive expressions. So the first one is sometimes talked about as refraining from uh, not telling the truth. And this first guideline is very, very crucial. In fact, it's sometimes said that the only guideline that a bodhisattva should never break is the guideline about, about refraining from telling the truth that this is taken in for the Buddha to be very, very central. And we can see when we reflect on truthfulness that it's very, very central to basically to trust, to trusting ourselves, to trusting others, that when we are not truthful, what happens? There's, there are a lot of ways that the whole social compact uh, tends to break down. And so truthfulness is very, very vital for social harmony, for our our own well-being. And yet we know that in many ways we're not always truthful. You know, in many ways when we start to use this guideline, we can find that we are sometimes um, telling half-truths, we are sometimes exaggerating, 
you know, particularly for for um, self-image. You know, I remember. I think I still have a residue of this. For many, many years, um, I thought that my feet were too big. You know, and each of us has something like this. We have some part of our body that we think was not correctly manufactured. <laughs> you know, and and I I used to when people asked what my shoe size was. I always used to bring it down a little bit, you know. And although I can't say that that issue is a very live one for me, I still notice it. You know, I still notice it. Someone, people don't ask me what my shoe size is that often. But, you know, I still notice there's still some conditioning around that. And, of course, around charged areas, you know. Um, some, you know, for some of us it might be, you know, what do you do when someone asks you your age, or you know, or or, or it could be something else. Uh, although that's that's a tricky one because of all the uh, strange views in our society about aging. But um, but in any case, when we are, when we invite ourselves to be mindful about uh, truthfulness, we start to give more attention to all the ways that we might not be so truthful, and we start to look at the impact of that on our lives, and so. It's really an invitation to um, to see the ways that just in our everyday lives we are not necessarily so truthful, and to see what the impact of that is. And we also have to recognize that we're in a culture which, in many ways, is not so truthful. You know, I don't know if the present administration is less truthful than Clinton talking about his affairs, but. There obviously are a lot of untruths that are coming from the government, you know, and the culture is not necessarily supportive. I was I was reflecting. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it be wonderful to have leaders who were more morally and spiritually advanced than we were? <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, and it's. Um, but we have to we have to live with that in some way, you know. And there's this very scary quotation that I found uh, a year or two ago. It was in a case that was coming before the Supreme Court in which um, a woman named Jennifer Harbury, who some of you know, was uh, bringing a case charging that the government had deliberately lied about her, about her husband, who was a, a guerrilla in Guatemala. And before the court, the uh, Solicitor General of the United States said that, uh, he, that it would be very dangerous to ask the government to always be truthful. And he said this. He said he warned the court to use utmost caution before interpreting the Constitution as guaranteeing citizens a truthful response to inquiries of the government. He alluded to the government's occasional need to deceive in order to protect sensitive operations, noting that, quote, it's easy to imagine an infinite number of situations where government officials might quite legitimately have reasons to give false information. And, it's a, again, it's a tricky issue. I don't mean to suggest that it's simple, but... Um, there is there is in our culture not always uh, a high respect for truthfulness, and I think we have to recognize that when we do this practice. You know, and it may be that in one's work or in one's in other situations, truthfulness may or may not be taken so so seriously. Now, sometimes we when we talk about wise speech, only truthfulness is mentioned. But I think it's important to see that there are these other three qualities of speech as well that are very crucial. And in particular, sometimes we can know that just being truthful can be linked with actually uh, 
being quite harmful and negative. I can be truthful in a way that uh, in which sometimes I want to hurt someone. And so the second guideline is in a very important balance. It's the, bal- it's the balance to combine the truthfulness also with helpfulness. To have, and sometimes when wise speech is condensed just to two guidelines, we hear the guidelines of both truthfulness and helpfulness. And so the quality of being helpful is really to, to see, it's to, it's to give us a, a kind of a balance to... Uh, to our truthfulness, so to know that really that our intentions are not necessarily ones that would w- use truthfulness as a kind of weapon. You know, that we, uh, you know, we, uh, we know when we do that. We know that sometimes we can be very truthful and I may want to say something about whatever, about um, some other state of affairs in a way to, to hurt others or to satisfy some personal pain. And that's why the second guideline of helpfulness is really crucial. And when we do the mindfulness of, in relation to helpfulness, we can really ask ourselves, at what times am I really not trying to be helpful? When, when, do, when, does, my, when does my language, when does my speech start to become hurtful? You know, and I think we particularly can look at sarcastic speech you know, and perhaps some aspects of telling jokes, obviously, have an intention to injure or to harm. And so we can really, um, again, the, the spirit of this practice is to really try to work with the guidelines and then set that up as a way of being mindful, to set that up as a, a way to uh, work with just what we find and to be careful to be judgmental too much about, about what we find. The third guideline is... is is to, as the Buddha said, to speak with a lovable heart. It's to be kind. You know, the Buddha talked negatively about abstaining from speech that's harsh, to to abstain from from speech that comes more out of um, anger or hatred, to be very careful with speech when we're angry, to be very careful with speech when we're reactive. And there is... We can also think of this uh, kind speech as being this tremendous healing energy, you know. And I'll I'll tell a story which I, I think I told a few years ago here, which I hope doesn't. It's a story that my my mother told me, so I hope it doesn't embarrass her too much. But it's um, it's a story that she told when it, when I told her once that I was interested in um, looking at wise speech or right speech. She told me a story about when she had. Um, been at a talk that was given by a man named Robert Lifton, some of you know, who was uh, who's a psychiatrist who's been very prominent in the human rights area. He was actually one of my teachers in, in college. And uh, he was giving a talk, I don't know what it was about, maybe, maybe human rights. And during the question time, um, a woman asked a question and there was a collective groan that came over the whole group as if she had not understood anything that was said. You know, and people were kind of waiting for him to answer and say, I didn't mean that at all, you know, or, or you know, how could you possibly think that I said that? And instead, he, he answered with kindness. And he spoke with kindness. And he said something like, well, I see how you maybe could have thought that, but let's look at it a little more closely. And he said it in a way which was totally not embarrassing her. 
And he said it in a way that um, had such an impact on my mother that 10 years later she told me the story, that it stayed with her as a, as a mark of, of kindness. And, you know, I think that this is such a, particularly maybe at this time when we think about Thanksgiving and being, um, cultivating gratitude and thanks, that I think that quality of kind speech is something that we might really be inspired to use um, in the next day, in the next days. Uh, that, you know, I think of, there was a book that a friend of mine wrote about um, a man named uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a rabbi who walked with Martin Luther King and was a very powerful spiritual teacher. And a friend wrote a biography of him, and it was called Holiness in Words, which I really love that, uh, that title, Holiness in Words. It was, it was a biography of him. And I thought there was um, a poem also that I wanted just to read a little bit of from, from uh, Rumi, which I think expresses that quality of this very kind and, and thankful, thankful speech. God picks up the reed flute world and blows. You think of God as speaking through a flute, and the flute is a metaphor for speaking through each of us. Each note is a need coming through one of us, a passion, a longing, pain. Remember the lips where the wind breath originated and let your note be clear. Don't try to end it. Be your note. I'll show you how it's enough. Go up on the roof at night in the city of the soul. Let everyone climb on their roofs and sing their notes. <laughs> sing loud. <laughs> this is sort of uh, another sort of aspect of wise speech or the kind speech. Let your, let your beautiful speech sound. Uh, and the last quality of wise speech is what I call clear intention, which is sometimes talked about as uh, refraining from gossip for refraining from distracted speech, from, um, it's really, it's also spoken more positively about sometimes as uh, speaking with good timing when things are, when at the appropriate time. It's really, uh, it, it really points to the way that wise speech as a practice is a kind of art form that we, in our speech, <clears throat> we can't just be truthful and we can't just be helpful and kind, but we have to have good timing. That's another way to say it. That we have to, you know, if our friend doesn't want to hear our helpful, kind, truthful speech, right? If the person is basically saying, you know, I'm totally overwhelmed, I don't want to hear anything, and we give this wonderful, impassioned, helpful, true, kind speech, we've missed something, right? that there's something about the quality of timing and appropriateness, which is also key to speech. It's, it's a sense of, this is where we would tie in with the sense of skillful means, the sense of really uh, knowing a situation. Uh, and the, I think the, the problem of um, the, what the Buddha was, what's translated as gossip, and you know, I think we can think of gossip in its negative sense as pointing to a kind of distracted speech, I think gossip in its positive sense is telling the news of the community. (laughs) 
and in its negative sense is the kind of uh, speech that often would get into uh, backbiting and negative speech about another. And so this last, uh, this last quality really points towards how can we be sensitive to the situation and be, be able to um, be intuitive enough to know when a certain kind of speech is, is it, it really is workable. So when we, when we look to these uh, qualities of speech, it's, I think it's very, very helpful to ask which of these qualities of truthfulness and helpfulness and kindness and, and good timing or clear intention, which of these am I good at? And which of these am I not so good at? Some of my own inspiration for speech came when I worked for about three months with, um, uh, actually with, I think with both, I have two small groups that work in my house, that come to my house about every two weeks and are ongoing practice groups. And we worked with speech for three months together. And it was really, it was really exciting, not just, not just once, but we worked for three months and people were going home and, you know, one of the people in the group, every time she would get near her teenage daughter, she would write truthful, helpful, kind, and <laughs> clear intention on her hand. And as she would be talking to her daughter, she'd have it right in front of her. And, and I, I would, you know, when I was right in the middle of that, whenever a telephone would ring, I would say, truthful, helpful, kind, clear intention. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and I think it's, that's some of the energy that I think is very, can be very inspiring for our speech to really find ways to do that. Sometimes when I go to meetings, I have a sheet of paper that says, for me, for me, truthful, helpful, kind, clear intention. I put this piece of paper right in front of me at the meeting. No one else can sort of see it. It's not like a big you know, neon sign or something, but it's just enough to keep reminding me. And I, I just, uh, I love the times, and I don't, I don't do this all the time, have to confess, but I, I love the times when there's, more, uh, when there's more mindfulness, when I really can actually be there in the present moment at a meeting and be primarily thinking about these guidelines and about what I find when I'm mindful. But we have to ask, you know, where, where, where am I strongest? Where am I weakest? You know, for example, I, I tended to find that when I was just in my normal, habitual, everyday mode, I was pretty good with truthful and helpful, but I wasn't always so good with, with kind. And so I had to say, well, okay, let's, let's have a little more energy on the kindness here. Let's do that a little bit better. And, and it, it could inspire me to have more energy for that. So then I come to the second area, which I've covered some already. How do we really develop our mindfulness. Um, how do we bring that into daily life? How do we, how do we do the practices to help us uh, bring wise speech into into make it a daily life practice? And I want to really talk about uh, just a few a few things, and then and then do a practice together. Um, the first is to begin to do an inventory of our speech to really see using mindfulness, what's there. To see the patterns that are there, to see the ways that we may not always be so following of the guidelines. To really start looking, to bring mindfulness, and not to be too shocked by what we see. Uh, as, as in your question about seeing um, an incredible number of judgments, you know, incredible number of... Uh, uh, JPH, 
judgments per hour, <laughs> no, or, or to to um, to to not be so shocked by seeing that uh, in our speech we're we're often not so much following these because I think it's more it's again very much like your point like once sometimes we see something we can let go of a lot so making that inventory is very important having that that mindfulness be strong and a second um, a second general uh, guideline that I want to suggest is that it, for most of us it's very important to have some presence in our body to have some body awareness as we're practicing and this is more difficult it's to start to have um, some inner attention that's going at the same time as outer attention you know John Travis who's one of my mentors speaks I think, and I think I've mentioned this from time to time of having this 50-50 attention of having 50% inner and 50% outer which is very challenging. How can we have inner attention at the same time as outer attention? It takes a lot of concentration, actually. And it's not something we can typically do right off. We need, this is, I would say, in some ways, this is an advanced mindfulness practice. But how can we be in the midst of action and have inner attention? Because if we don't, we'll tend more easily to get lost. So I want to, um, I want to have us do a practice together that can explore uh, some of the mindfulness practice with speech. And I'd like to first, if you can just uh, take about a minute and sit quietly. This will have really uh, a few parts. And the first part is to just ask yourself, how might I develop in my speech practice? Where do I feel called to develop? And now I'd like to invite you to find a partner. Just you'll be with one other person, so uh, just choose choose the person next to you, presumably. Does everyone have a partner? Okay. And let the person closest to me. Be partner number one. Okay. okay, does everyone have one? Okay. Whoever doesn't have a partner, raise your hand. Okay. Uh, I can step out, Donald. I've done it a you're, you're good on speech. Well, no, I've done the exercise many times. Okay. Yeah, she, she doesn't need to do it. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Okay, let the person be closest who's closest to me be number one. And so if, uh, if you're equal distant, let one person say, I'm number one. Okay. And the first, number one, number one is the first listener. And number two is the first speaker. And you'll each have a chance to do both roles. So the role of the speaker will be to talk about how you might develop 
in your speech, how you might develop in your wise speech, and you'll have a few minutes to do that. If you can, keep some body awareness and a little bit of inner attention as much as you can. The person who's listening will be, see if you can, keep that 50% inner attention, 50% outer attention. Keep some attention on your body. Your role is not to say anything, but just to listen. If you want to say, if you want to move your head and nod and say, "Uh uh-huh, and so forth, that's okay. And each of you will also be thinking about those four guidelines of truthful, helpful, and so forth. So everyone, and we'll do this, we'll have about three minutes, three or four minutes each. It'll be pretty brief. Is everyone clear on what to do? So take right now, take 30 seconds and set your intention. It might be to work with those four guidelines. It might be to keep some body awareness, to keep the 50-50 attention. Set your intention. Okay, and I'll ring a bell. Uh, I'll make an announcement when there's about 30 seconds left and then ring a bell to close, to switch over. About another 30 seconds. So if you can say thank you to your partner. And now we'll, we'll switch roles. So now number one becomes the speaker and number two the listener. And I'll just repeat the roles for the, for the speaker. It's to talk about the ways that you might develop in wise speech or anything related to the topic. And if you can, be, have some inner attention at the same time as you're speaking and see what helps with that. As a listener, especially have that, see if you can definitely have 50% inner attention as you're listening, because you, you don't have to speak at all, and you don't need that much attention to nod. <laughs> so so keep, keep that 50%. Remember that this is a safe laboratory. You can do something which might feel a little bit unsafe in daily life, to keep the 50% inner and, and listen both externally and internally to yourself. And being in your body might help. Everyone clear about the instructions? So we'll, again, take about 30 seconds, set your intention, which may be to work with those guidelines as well as the uh, inner and outer attention.
About another 30 seconds. So if you can say thank you to your partner, and we'll come back to the, uh, the group as a whole now. We're a little short of time because, uh, partly because we got so interested in judgments earlier, but I'll try not to be judgmental about that. Um, uh, and so normally I think I would have people talk one-on-one about what happened uh, with each other there, but I wanted to just bring us back to be with the whole group for a little while um, and say anything that you found, discovered, or any comments or questions related to why speech what was the practice like? Please. Yeah. That's great. I guess, I guess we could use those guidelines also with nonverbal behavior. It's really, it's really an invitation to, it's really about our communication. I think we focus on speech because it's right out there, but you're right. So we can, uh, it, it adds another level of complexity to, to look at the nonverbal dimension and to to really know in oneself, um, in a way, we can, I guess, we, we, we sometimes get involved where we think that our words are truthful, helpful, kind, and have clear intentions, and our nonverbal uh, communication is in tension with that, right? Which is, it's a fascinating aspect of our, of our potential. <laughs> uh, please, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's great. I think I think what is really being encouraged now, and I'm thinking that I will. I was going to have a follow up on this, partly by popular request when I invited people to say what you'd like to hear later, and there seemed to be maybe it was that day, but there was a particular interest in talking about how does the Dharma relate? How how do we relate? Uh, how do we use the Dharma to, in our practice to help us relate to difficult people? And so I was going to have a follow-up that particularly tied that to speech, combine the question of speech and difficult people. But it's, um, I think the first, the beginning here is I think we just uh, are mindful of the patterns. And I think, I think you would really be able to, to know. And I, I think one thing that's interesting is that uh, in terms of truthfulness, it's not like we have a complete detailed account of what truthfulness is in every situation. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for inquiry here. There's a lot of room for really seeing what our motivations are, what our, um, uh, our capacities for self-deception, 
you know, and to really look carefully and to, I think, you know, maybe, maybe truthful listening would be, uh, what, just listening as much as possible without interfering, maybe? I don't know. Well, and paying attention. Paying attention. Yeah. So a lot of this is really just to see what's there because it's there's going to be a lot there that makes it hard for us to to follow these guidelines. Yeah. But I, I love the the level of mindfulness as, that you're reporting. Um, if you could imagine when you go away from the hall that you have the support of the entire group to be mindful. Imagine imagine that we carry the group with us which in the sense we do, that, we, that when we are speaking, we can imagine that maybe a lot of us here will be inspired in the next week to do mindfulness of speech practice. And you can imagine that there are whatever, 35 or 40 people here who are at the same time that we, we are attending to it, that they are doing their best, maybe around the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> so thank you. Please, yeah. That that if um, that if we were not really trying to uh, be helpful or to be kind or to help people if they're feeling distressed, that we might uh, uh, poetry might might actually do that better, huh? Yeah. Sometimes. Well, no, I, I know what you mean now. Yeah. Does everyone understand? It's, it's in some way, um, I mean, if, I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit, but it's, it's basically appreciating the, um, the living humanity of the person. It's one way to say it. Uh, and being aware that, uh, especially a lot of our reactive speech, when we're hurt or when, when there's pain, we will tend to um, um, sort of take a certain snapshot and make that into the person forever, something like that. And that a lot that that uh, I think that's really helpful to help point out how much in our speech are we doing that? How much does our speech or, or our judgments? How much are we? Essentially, again, often because of pain, um, creating some crystallized image or some some. Um, <coughs> some particular snapshot that we have for a very long time, and I, I know that we do that. The language yeah. sets it up that way. The language can, yeah. 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 You know, I, I noticed that myself just, just yesterday, someone who hadn't sent me an email for a long time with whom I have a difficult relationship sent an email, and I didn't read it for a few hours, and I was saying, okay, mm-hmm. I'll just do good practice, and because I, I thought it might be a really difficult email, and it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I think we uh, there's a lot to look at because sort of I think what you're pointing to is like everything comes into play in speech. You know, all our tendencies to make the world fixed, to do that because of pain, to uh, you know, and I mean, we could go. You know, I, I I've been particularly interested in speech and. I, I've, some of you know I developed a day-long retreat on speech, and the, the last part of it is sort of to uh, to go further with understanding how we use concepts in general, and how we how we tend to um, 
use concepts and language in, in an overly rigid way and what it would mean to not do so. So it's, but it's, um, it's, I think it takes, for a lot of us, it takes the foundation of first beginning to be just mindful with our speech and see what's there. But thank you for adding that, uh, that piece. Well, I can I can keep on going. I love this stuff with speech, but I'm I'm looking at the clock, and I know I, I took we took a lot of, um, well, we're we're at time basically is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and then just do a very brief closing meditation. Uh, so let's just sit for a minute to close. I invite to be present. Whatever was most a helpful from the morning related to your sitting or any of the sharing and talking together as well as the focus on speech. And invite particularly any intentions which you may have to Bring speech into your practice in the next week. You can set that intention now if you have the one. And so at this time of this um, usually wonderful holiday of Thanksgiving, We know that our practice is not just for ourselves, but for all others. And may we have a sense that our practice from this morning and from other times moves outward, outward from this hall in all directions, to touch all with whom we're in contact, to know that we dedicate our practice and our time now for the healing and the benefit and the awakening of all beings. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.